0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm ML Clark. Around 17 years ago, A little before BuzzFeed quizzes and eons before TikTok challenges. In an age of chain questionnaires on LiveJournal and do-it-yourself tests on Yahoo, I did what everyone else in my online circles was suddenly doing. I hopped onto a website promising to calculate my carbon footprint. By entering a few details about where I lived, what I consumed, how I commuted, and how often I travelled, I could learn how much I, as an individual, was negatively impacting the world's CO2 levels. My result wasn't that bad relative to other Canadians. But then again, I was only a student. So that number was more of a stark reminder that any major choices I made in the future, to buy a car, or to live in a standalone house, or to have children, would only contribute to this terrible environmental crisis that in 2004 we knew was both looming and already upon us. What I didn't know at the time, what many people didn't know while they were eagerly adding carbon footprint to their vocabularies of environmental justice, was how much one oil company in particular, British Petroleum, or BP for short, was responsible for the widespread popularity of this term and for the notion that reducing individual carbon footprints through personal consumer choices was our most critical battle against climate change. This reframing of the issue was part of BP's long-term brand renovation to seem more environmentally responsible irrespective of its actual operations. In order to shift focus from their impact on the environment to that of average human beings, they had worked with a PR company to launch an online carbon footprint calculator and related ad campaign promoting the idea that waste and pollution were fights to be won, one person, one footprint, at a time. And as a culture, we generally bought into it, but for perfectly coherent reasons. Yes, on one level, we simply liked quizzes, along with other clear ways of categorizing where we stood. These were still the years, you might recall, when it was common to sort oneself into various Hogwarts houses and to incorporate the results into our social identities. But on a deeper level, we also just liked the idea of personal agency that lay at the heart of BP's campaign. We liked being told that we could in fact make a difference, even change the world. And we liked having a simple blueprint for change at our disposal. Because where was the fun in being part of a movement for change if that change was in fact hard? I say simple blueprint, but really I should say simplistic blueprint because many of the variables included in these calculators are not easy to change on an individual level. If clean running transportation isn't available to you, either because it costs too much or simply doesn't exist in your region, and if you have a job that cannot be done at home, then you're left with no choice but to use the high carbon emitting options. Likewise, for most of us, moving to eco-friendly residences would be a costly affair, especially in communities with a general scarcity of housing. Similarly, shopping for eco-friendly options can quickly break the budget, even if a vegetarian-centered food plan would also be better for many of us with respect to long-term health. And if you already have children, well, An expression about barn doors and fleeing horses comes to mind. Yes, maybe the carbon footprint calculator can make you more attuned to little improvements in your resource consumption, but your individual footprint is still shaped by the path of the whole stampede, to say nothing of the major businesses corralling our culture's priorities on whole. And so, instead of giving ourselves grief for quote-unquote buying in to Big Oil's misdirection, I'd like us to think about how our longing for personal agency makes us easy targets for false choices, and how this behaviour isn't all bad, because it can also embolden us to make better choices when we're provided with them. It's that mental flip, after all, that pivotal moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always seeks to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're walking through some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the carbon footprint. Today there is absolutely no hiding the oil industry's deep and abiding awareness of its own devastating ecological impact. Of the hundreds of major articles and reports that have popped up in recent years, one of the most valiantly comprehensive attempts to inform the general public of these facts was perhaps the collaborative journalism done for the Guardian's 2019 Polluters project, in which some 20 in-house journalists worked with leading scientists and NGOs around the world to disseminate the hardest and most damning analysis around corporate complicity in the ruination of our shared and fragile ecosystem. The report from which they drew most heavily was produced by Richard Heed of the Climate Accountability Institute. And according to that research, Chevron, Exxon, BP, and Shell alone are responsible for 10 percent of all the world's carbon emissions since 1965, while another 12 of the top 20 polluting companies, all state-owned, represent 20 percent of emissions from the same period. So much for the individual carbon footprint, right? Well, sort of. Except that there's a third way of thinking about carbon footprints not through individuals or through companies but through specific products that exist in the world for our everyday consumption. And this last type of footprint has been making a significant rise to prominence in recent years. In 2019 a Swedish plant milk company called Oatly started adding carbon footprint labels to their products, and in early twenty twenty a UK based meat free company called Corn Q U O R N announced its commitment to similar measures, while encouraging other businesses to follow suit. Corn has also been open about working with the Climate Leadership Network to create a roadmap to net zero production, an ambitious goal and a challenge that it set before other food manufacturers if they want to be seen as eco-savvy too. The restaurant chain Just Salad certainly did, because it soon after committed to adding carbon footprint labels to all their menu items. And a year later, the rise of what's called climatarianism even got a commitment from the distribution giant Unilever, which in 2021, stated that it would seek to label all 70,000 of its products. As well befits our rising cultural exhaustion with company-led activism though, mainstream journalists and analysts have generally favored cynicism and skepticism when reporting on these grand corporate declarations. Many have treated the food industry's sudden interest in the complex work of providing carbon footprint statistics as the quote-unquote new low-fat diet. As a fad, in other words. And not the first time that this one has been attempted, either. In 2017, Tesco also committed to carbon footprint labelling its own 70,000 products, but then had to scrap the project in 2012, citing the immense cost and complexity of the work. PepsiCo made and scrapped its commitment to carbon labeling back then too. Some advocacy groups are happy, of course, to see other companies making the attempt again because they genuinely view labeling as a step in the right direction for the creation of more informed consumers. And yet, that very adjective, informed, is still a sticking point in the whole process for many journalists and researchers and for me. After all, even if the final unit of measure proves to be consistent across packaging, there is still no standardized method for calculating one's carbon footprint, which makes it very difficult for products from different manufacturers to be compared in relation to their relative environmental impact, unless consumers are expressly trained in reading these labels, even trying to assess whether the number is good or bad will take a lot of work. Worse yet, Western consumers have always had to expect embellishment on the part of private enterprise because of all the clever tricks that have been built into nutritional information for the past few decades. Who can forget the famous, part of a complete breakfast, cereal ads of the 1990s? which illustrated that your high-sugar cereal of choice only constituted part of a healthy diet if it was completely surrounded by fruit, toast, eggs, and other actually healthy food items. Likewise, for decades, the percentage of daily recommended sugar was conveniently absent in standard nutritional charts for all foods and beverages, and even though the sugar lobby is finally losing that battle in certain districts, companies can still get away with claims that a product has less sugar when really, the company has simply reduced the amount of product in the package entirely. To give some sense of the scale of the problem when it comes to the myth of an informed consumer, drop by the University of California San Francisco website sometime. Its sugar science page lists 61 alternative names for sugar that you can find in the ingredients for packaged foods, including the dreaded and pervasive high fructose corn syrup. This page also offers clear examples of how everyday items can pack a strikingly high amount of sugar, even when the product labels go out of their way to assure you of their low sugar content. So sure, okay. Perhaps some of the early adopters of this new label trend, the smaller food companies with expressly eco-friendly business missions, can be trusted not to fudge their carbon footprint figures. But there is little reason for the quote-unquote informed Western consumer to think that major brands now hopping onto the climatarian bandwagon won't play around with the wording for their environmental emissions labels, too. After all, when it comes to carbon footprint labeling, the potential for unreliable readings is far greater, because at least sugar is something we vaguely understand, but emissions calculations? Not so much as a general rule. And yet, consumers will need to give each label more than a passing glance to see if the listed footprint has been presented in relation to the product's caloric content or its weight. That slight variation in labeling can be hugely misleading, and it will certainly skew one's ability to directly compare two competing products. Then there's the question of when the company is measuring the environmental cost of production for a given product, because the carbon footprint for growing, say, fruits locally in winter is quite different from fruit production in the summer. Is the company averaging its impact over the whole year, or choosing the most forgiving production season for a given item? Then we also have to consider whether carbon equivalents, that is, methane and nitrous oxide emissions, which also negatively affect the ecosystem but whose effects dissipate at different rates should be included in this carbon footprint figure, and if so, at what ratio to the number one long-term troublemaker, carbon itself? Many possible answers exist. Since we're getting into technical waters though, this seems a good point to direct you to some excellent resources by seasoned journalists and relevant experts. In an episode of the podcast How to Save a Planet, delightfully titled Is Your Carbon Footprint BS, hosts Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Alex Bloomberg explore this question of whether individual carbon footprints matter by taking turns arguing against and then for the value of our personal choices. It's a fun exercise in holding competing ideas in tension, And it's packed with up-to-date statistics showing the scale of the problem and the choices that might actually make a difference. Going from fun to sobering, I then recommend reading through the Global Energy Review on CO2 for 2021, issued by the International Energy Agency, It's a data-packed slap in the face for anyone vaguely hoping that the pandemic's one positive outcome would have been a major and sustained transformation in CO2 emissions. Alack, we're returning right to our old ways. For a more comprehensive and well-sourced look at challenges for the adoption of carbon footprint food labeling, I also recommend Susan Brownlow's April 19, 2021 article for New Food magazine, Carbon Labeling, The Focus Shifts from Calories to Climate. The title might be pretty dull, but that's a good thing, because plain spoken talk is just what consumers need around this complex issue. But if you really just want to get riled up by how much we've been derailed for decades by corporate agendas? Oh Okay, fine. For that, there's also Mark Kaufman's The Carbon Footprint Sham in Mashable's Social Goods series 2021. This piece offers a compelling juxtaposition between BP's most recent attempts to get us to focus again on individual impact calculators and its own ongoing acts of environmental devastation. Even when Kaufman suggests possible solutions in play, he never lets us forget how urgent the problem is, because it really, really is, and that sucks for the vast majority of us with so little we can do. Episodes 4 and 6, on the quinoa market and the humble egg, I spoke of the struggle for everyday consumers to attain actual agency within current food industry trends. This surge in carbon footprint labels has come full circle too, inasmuch as it has led to a renewed call for consumer education programs and a return to online footprint calculators, to encourage people to think more about their individual impact. I tried another calculator myself recently, and that analysis, run by the Global Footprint Network, told me that if everyone consumed the way I consumed, we would need 3.4 Earths to support my ecological footprint. Apparently, that's still on the low side for those taking the test, so a win for me, I guess? But again, there are now very few things I can do to further reduce my individual impact. I already live in a lower carbon footprint country. I don't have kids. I don't drive or fly. And I live in an apartment building, not a standalone property with shared recycling and composting services. And yet, rather than seeing the limits to individual transformation as a problem, I choose to consider them freeing, in a way. If I've already reduced most of what I can reduce, then I can focus more on advocating for bigger changes, and on encouraging others to do likewise. The only trouble is, some of those bigger changes truly are Herculean, because our legal and economic systems have made direct democracy a pipe dream kind of an ironic phase these days, considering that dreams of big oil pipelines are often exactly what's overriding the will of average global citizens. These days, even if many countries want to reduce their reliance on oil-based economies, including Colombia, they're caught up in a mess of international private and state petropolitics that restrict what many countries have on hand to invest in alternative energy futures. But that whole sticky situation in which one country or corporation has the capacity to hamstring any given community's ability to change its local priorities is a topic for another episode. For now, it simply needs to be said that while there are many different roads to reducing CO2 emissions, they're not all equal journeys. The most important footprint we need to be considering if we're to make anywhere near the level of meaningful progress we need to is the one left by human industry as a whole. And this kind of reframing matters, because the steps we need to take to shrink our global footprint are quite different from those you'll find on individual calculators. They include changing our democratic processes and renegotiating the power that corporations have over public policy and reclaiming urban design and growth modeling to better serve the constituents of any given community with a mind to future generations too. Therein lies the real crux of our coming work as global humanists. Even if it's not exactly on trend in our social media circles, we need to learn how to put aside quiz-sized questions and answers to the biggest problems for our species so that we can advocate all the better for solutions that might actually change the world. This has been Global Humanist Chop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday. First to Global Humanist Chop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one man dream team of an audio production specialist, studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, theme music comes care of Cabalistic Village on Soundcloud, and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving.